Welcome to another Evolving Smart Storytelling session. Today we are with Dr. Colin Schoen. Colin is an assistant professor of research in the Department of Pediatrics, Pediatric Hepatology, Gastroenterology, and Nutrition at the University of Colorado School of Medicine on the Anschutz Medical Campus. Colin's research is focused on understanding how inflammation impacts the liver during chronic disease. Colin has more than an active academic interest in liver disease. He is a two-time recipient and 23-year survivor of a liver transplant. In today's podcast, we will learn about being the recipient of an organ and how that is the ultimate gift of life. Hi, this is Kelly Gehring, the founder of Evolving Smart, and today we have Dr. Colin Shern on our show to help us tell a story about things that are related to organ transplant, volleyball, and the gift of life. So I just wanted to welcome Colin. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. I um, wanted to start. Your um, credentials are long and lengthy. And um, as we heard from the intro, we talked about assistant professor of research um, for pediatrics, hepatology, gastrology, nutrition, and some of the understandings of chronic liver disease. Um, but before we get into all of that, I kind of want to set the stage for our audience and tell everybody who you are outside of your research and outside of your own personal um, story of organ transplant. I understand you played volleyball. Yes, I do. What as much type as I of volleyball? Can. <laughs> I play sand volleyball uh, as much as I can. I will admit that as I've gotten older, uh, it's getting harder. But uh, I still try to get out and play in the summer uh, at least once or twice a week, yes. And there's a lot of volleyball here in Colorado, and it's a fairly close-knit group, and it's a lot of fun. So, yeah. That's great. But but how did you start your volleyball career? Oh, that's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> uh, I went to CSU in the mid-'80s, and I was in a, in a dorm called Corbett Hall. <laughs> And uh, my room overlooked the courtyard in Corbett Hall, and there were all these guys playing volleyball, and there were all these girls watching all these guys. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, what a great way to meet girls. <laughs> so that's how I started playing. Uh, yeah, as a 19-year-old at CSU, uh, wanting to meet girls, and then I fell in love with the sport as well. So, yeah. Well, I always like to add a bit of um humor, a little bit of realistic things that we do in our lives as well. But I um, I really want to talk to you about um, your research and your personal story on liver research or and organ transplants. So let's talk about how you became, I will use the air quotes of interested in liver transplant and how that story started to unfold. You use the air quotes, interested. Uh, well, I don't know if I became interested. It was kind of forced on me. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was about 24 years old, I was diagnosed with uh, uh, terminal liver disease that could only, only way to preserve my life would be to get a liver transplant. Uh, at the time, I worked for a biotech company in Boulder, uh, I'd already graduated with a bachelor's of science in biochemistry, but, you know, routine testing at the company showed I had elevated liver enzymes and uh, 
I personally at that time thought maybe I just went out and partied and drank too much. Mm -hmm. uh, another side effect of the volleyball world uh, <laughs> at that time. <laughs> Not anymore. Uh, but uh, as it turned out, after you know quite a few tests and, and working with doctors, they diagnosed me with a disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis, uh, which is a disease of your bile ducts in your liver. And your bile ducts are what uh, transport bile, and bile is responsible for, for uh, it aids in digestion of fats and things like that. So when you, you have ducts that are injured, then the bile doesn't flow, and that destroys your liver. That's what PSC is at the basic core, mm -hmm. is that the bile ducts in your liver get scarred and damaged. They close up. You get stoppage of bile. Uh, and that uh, causes, actually in your body, anytime you ever have any fluid that just doesn't flow, mm -hmm. it's prone to infections. Uh, so you get infections in the liver. That's called cholangitis because of uh, the cell types that are affected. And uh, then eventually your bile ducts uh, become completely closed or so severely scarred and your liver is so badly damaged that it fails. It stops functioning very well and you need a transplant. Uh, currently, there are no cures for PSC, even though it's been a very long time since I had mine. Uh, this mm -hmm. was, I was diagnosed in 90, early 90s, mm -hmm. uh, actually 1994, uh -huh. if I remember correctly. And uh, even though people have been hammering at this, researching it, including myself, we don't have a cure for most diseases that affect your bile ducts. So uh, that's kind of, it was forced on me. It was not mm -hmm. by choice by any means. Understand, understand. So, you know, you talk about the organ transplant and we know that you've been a recipient, not just once, but twice because of your disease and things that have happened. So the first time you went through the organ um, transplant process, how did you feel and, and what, what were you thinking when that occurred? So I was diagnosed around 1994. And for the first four years or so, I continued competing at a fairly high level in doubles volleyball, both in Colorado and across the country. Uh, but then uh, about 1997, my liver started to fail. And uh, I wasn't, uh, it was hard to say, I, I didn't really notice it at first. Mm -hmm. But then the, the way you tell uh, your liver is failing is by your liver enzymes. And, and when your li liver enzymes in your bilirubin go up, uh, and start increasing outside the norms, then your liver is slowly getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And by 1997, my liver was in pretty bad shape. Uh, and I was finally listed for transplant uh, mm -hmm. in 1997. And they, they uh, the one thing about being on a transplant list is they, they say, well, whenever you're, you're called, uh, you know, you don't know when you're going to get that phone call. And I remember driving around Denver at the time. And I think, uh, I don't remember the exact month, but it was when Hale Bop was in the sky. And I was driving down the highway, looking at Hale Bop, thinking to myself, will I ever see another comet like this? Because uh, a transplant, a lot of people, you know, people, not a lot of people, but people can die during mm -hmm. a transplant. And if I, I already knew if I didn't get the transplant, since my liver was already going downhill, that I was going to die anyway. Uh, and it really made me retrospective on what I wanted to do in my life. So I applied to grad school at that very same time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm like, well, I don't want to work at a biotech company forever. I'd like to get a PhD. Uh, mm -hmm. So I applied for, a, uh, for grad schools and uh, kind of just played the waiting game. 
even though my liver was getting sicker, the one thing about your liver is it actually regenerates mm. uh, compared to most of your other organs. So it's really resilient to injury. It really is. And it takes a lot to kill your liver. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can function very normally, even though your liver is getting worse for quite a long time. And so I functioned pretty normally. Uh, I mean, there were there side effects such as uh, jaundice uh, and uh, itching because uh, mm -hmm. you get itching all over your entire body when your liver starts to fail. It's called pruritus. And you literally scratch holes in your skin uh, when it's severe. Uh, and wow. there's not real good ways to prevent it. There are a few drugs that do help, though. But I was still actually still able to play volleyball. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Believe it or not, and uh, even though my bile ducts were closed, they did a, an operation on me, which uh, put external stents uh, into my bile ducts, into my liver to keep the bile flowing. Wow. So I was walking around with bags taped to my sides. Uh, uh -huh. you know, it's kind of morbid to think of that, but it's a lot of people walk around the world with bags if they have col colostomies, then they have to wear bags for colostomies. Right. Uh, and if your bile ducts get all closed up and they, they have to force them open with tubes to keep bile flowing, they have biliary drainage bags. And I, I would literally stretch, strap those on my waist, even to play volleyball. I just wow. wear a long T-shirt. I mean, uh -huh. really, just wear a T-shirt. Nobody would know they were there. Uh, I would go to class with them mm -hmm. uh, and live life as normal as I possibly could. And uh, I, I kind of was in denial. I'm, like, my, I'm just going to live my life as, as I can. Mm -hmm. uh, but then... You know, one day in late April, uh, I was actually playing softball and I had golf that day. <laughs> uh, yeah, your, <laughs> you, your you liver's stayed, failing it. You're still golfing. Athletics. Yeah, I, I was. Well, I, part of my philosophy was if I stay as strong as I can and stay as athletic as I can, I'm going to be able to survive this surgery, which has, you know, like a 16 inch incision across your stomach one way and eight inches up the next. I mean, it's kind of like a Mercedes Benz where, where you're, you're, you have wow. a very long incision because your liver is really a huge organ. It takes up most of the right side of your body and part of the left uh, in your gut. Uh, so I was trying to stay athletic. <laughs> and another oh, yeah. story, I mean, they, they, they say you're not supposed to drink when, when you're on the transplant list. I didn't drink for 10 months until the very day I got the phone call for my oh, transplant. My <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I actually had a beer with my brothers on the golf course. Uh, I'm like, you know, it's been ten, about 10 months. They're not going to call me. And in reality, one beer won't hurt your liver. It really won't. I, as a liver scientist, I can tell you that. It doesn't hurt your liver. Uh, so I figured I'd have one beer while I was golfing around. Well, lo and behold, <laughs> uh, you, you know, later that afternoon, I'm playing softball. And I literally, I get, my brother calls out from the dugout saying that I have a phone call. And back then, we didn't have cell phone, a lot of cell phones. I had a pager. Uh, uh -huh. It was before pagers. This is 1998. Or before cell phones, sorry. It was 1998. And my brother yells at me. And I had just hit a double. And I was on second base. And he <laughs> yells at me and says, you've got a phone call. And I'm like, well, just take a message. Uh, and, and it turns out, he's like, no, I think you really want to get this one. And it mm -hmm. turned out it was University of Colorado Transplant Clinic. And it was my nurse, who was Tracy uh, Steinberg, calling telling me that they had a liver for me. Uh, needless to say, I ran off the base, uh, got in my car and drove straight to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and what they don't tell you, though, is that once you get to the hospital, you're going to wait a very long time before surgery. So I kind of sat up all night uh, and my mom met me at the hospital 
and and we chatted all night long just about everything that was important in life. And then they called me in five or six in the morning for surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was an extremely long night, but it was also one of the best nights of my life because my my mom and I got to basically just sit and talk. Right. And uh, it was a very special time between my mother and I. And uh, but yes, uh, after that, then it's it's full speed ahead. They 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 strap you in. Uh, they they add all the IVs, and then of course they come at you and say, "By the way, will you sign the consent form?" <laughs> <laughs> it's like so. Hold on a second. You have all these IVs in me, and and I'm I'm basically strapped in, ready to be taken back for surgery, and and you know, I'm not going to yank the IVs out. Now you want me to actually sign the consent form? Come on now. All right. right. I was kind of going, okay, doc, whatever. You know, of course I'm going to sign. No, I'm not going to back out here. Right. Uh, although many people do. You never know. It is very scary uh, knowing that you know they're going to take your entire liver off and they're going to put a new liver in and and. Although the vast majority of the new livers that they put in actually work immediately right away, some don't. You know, five percent right. of liver transplant patients don't survive the first year. Wow. Uh, and although you're like, oh, ninety-five percent—that's a la- large number. Well, five percent's still a number, and you're like, I don't want to be five percent. <laughs> right. It, it's great odds, but I don't. I still don't want those odds. Uh, right. But nevertheless, you know, I woke up sometime later in the day, and uh, you know then becomes the recovery process. Yeah. So that was my first transplant. How long, how long is the recovery, uh, Colin, from that surgery? How long does it take? And what, what, what do they tell you to expect? And Okay. So it's highly variable depending on how sick you are. Okay. Uh-huh. Sickest in, sickest out. Okay. Got it. And, and in my case, I actually was not my, I was physically extremely strong. Okay. Mm-hmm. Coming in. Uh, my heart was in incredibly shape. Uh, you know, my body, although the liver was really bad, I was in very good condition. So I was up and walking the very next day. And uh, I actually was doing wonderful, except for shortly, shortly thereafter, I developed infections in the incision. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had to get rid of those. And uh, there were other complications that they had. I had to go back in for surgeries. So I had uh, four surgeries in about 10 days. Wow. Uh, so although I was strong, that is actually abnormal. A lot of people get out today, five to seven days post-transplant, they, that you could be released and go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, my case turned out not to be that great. And it's because of all the complications. I developed a fungal infection. They were trying to get rid of fungal infections. I had bacterial infections because you're immunosuppressed. You have no immune system. Right. Uh, so... You know, they're trying to get rid of all these additional issues that have come up. And they thought they had everything taken care of. And they sent me home after about 10 days, okay, give or take. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the very first night I got home, my mom made me a wonderful crab dinner. It was the most awesome dinner I've had. Uh, but uh, uh, then I went upstairs and took a shower and I passed out in the shower. And I was in Evergreen, Colorado at the time. Uh, uh-huh. The nearest hospital to Evergreen is not very close. And it was still cold outside. It took the paramedics quite a while to get there. Uh, lo- long ambulance drive all the way down from Evergreen, all the way to where St. Anthony's is, which is off Colfax. Now it's moved uh, farther mm-hmm. to the west side of Denver. But back then it was off Colfax and I-25, give or take, a little bit uh, west of I-25. And it was weird because when it was a cold night and, and the paramedics would wheel, and I kept passing in and out of consciousness, but they wheeled me outside and suddenly I was amazingly alert and and they thought I had hit my head 
but it turns out I hadn't. <laughs> I got to the hospital. When I got to St. Anthony's, they couldn't get a pulse. Mm. So no pulse. My blood pressure was 40 over zero, basically unreadable. Uh, they started giving me IV saline and I perked right back up again. And it turns out uh, through a lot of different tests they did that the major artery that had gone to my liver, that goes to your liver, it's called your hepatic artery. And as the main blood supply to your liver is your hepatic artery. Well, mine decided just to rip off. Oh, my and, God. And I was actually bleeding to death inside. And the paramedics like, no, no, you hit your head. I'm like, no, I never hit my head. And I kept losing my vision also. My vision, I just go blind suddenly. Uh, and that's because I was bleeding to death inside. So needless to say, they brought me back. <laughs> wow. Uh, Although I was not awake, they did read me my last rites. My brother still doesn't fail to tell me that they led me. They read me my last rites and they went to, they told my family to come in and say goodbye. Uh, but I, I was out. I don't know. And I, I, I yeah, but I woke mm -hmm. up in, in the, in the recovery room uh, in intensive care. And that actually put me on the path to my second transplant <laughs> because the damage on the first one was so severe Mm -hmm. that I needed another one. How long was it before from the first one to the second one? So the first one was April 23rd. The second one was May 15th. Wow. So it still took a week or so. And, and it's a blur. It really is for me mm -hmm. uh, sitting in intensive care. And they, they actually moved me uh, back to the downtown CU Health Sciences Center because uh, uh, that's where the transplants happen. Right. Uh, my doctors somehow actually got privileges to go see me at St. Anthony's when I came in the door when they first brought me in. That's very uncommon. Uh, doctors don't have privileges to go from hospital to hospital unless they're affiliated, and they were not affiliated with St. Anthony's, but they actually met me at the door. I do remember that. But uh, So after a week then, uh, my number got called again, and, and I was uh, blessed for a second transplant. And that recovery was, was uh, harder. Mm -hmm. Yet I got out quicker. Wow. Uh, so Why was it harder? I was, because I lost so much weight between the first one and the second one. And then when I was released, I lost about 50 pounds. Oh, my goodness. And, and, and I was an athlete. I didn't have a lot of fat on me at all. So I lost 50 pounds of muscle. And I have pictures of me before and after. And you would be like, oh, my gosh, I, I looked like a skeleton. Partially because I mean, you're not eating and also all the trauma that I'd, I'd survived. Uh, from the first transplant, which is not easy, to the second one, to that one failing, to the second one, uh, and then having to recover from that. Mm -hmm. It was extremely hard. Uh, and I had a goal to play a volleyball tournament at the end of the summer, and I didn't make that goal. I, I wasn't strong enough. Now, I did golf in August, and I have wow. pictures of me trying to swing a golf club at Evergreen uh, Golf Course, and it's hilarious. Just looking, you're like, I probably had trouble getting the golf club around uh, at the time. But uh, mm -hmm. I still had applied to grad school. <laughs> so that August, I went to grad school. <laughs> wow. Uh, at Iowa State. Uh, probably not the best decision because uh, I was still extremely weak. But nevertheless, I went. Uh, I wanted to get on with my life. Uh, and I actually haven't looked back ever since. I really haven't. So It's a remarkable story. Um, so going through this process and the organ donors, um, the transplant listings. Um, and, you know, you hear about stories about people meeting their organ donor families. Um, did you ever go through that process? So 
first up, I have not personally met them. Okay. Mm -hmm. I wrote my very first letter to my transplant families about a year or so after I had started grad school. And in my case, it was really hard to figure out how to write it. Mm-hmm. Because you're thanking somebody who made the decision to save your life, who knew that their loved one was going was dying. Uh, their loved one was dying, and their loved one made the ultimate sacrifice so you could live. And, and trying to find the proper words to write to families, and I have two families to adequately dis- adequately describe what it meant to me mm-hmm. as a 29 year old when I got my transplant. That's how old I was was extremely hard to write that letter. It was extremely emotional. Uh, I remember that I, I don't have the letter anymore, but I actually have seen a copy of it because one of my families actually wrote me back uh, with a copy of it. Mm-hmm. But I, I wrote it kind of saying thank you, but also trying to say, this is what I'm trying to do with my life with the gift you have given me because you, you've given me the gift of life. Uh, and of course, both my transplant families didn't know I'd had two transplants. Well, actually. Sorry, the second one actually did know, uh-huh. uh, but the, the first one has never known that that transplant failed. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I've never told them, but that transplant kept me alive. It saved my life, and I consider it just as important as the second one because uh, I would have eventually died without the first one anyway. Uh, it, no question about it, I would have died, uh, and I would have never had the, the life I have today. But I did write both of them. One family wrote me back almost immediately, thanking me for their letter. And, and they did tell me a little bit about the person who donated. It was a woman mm-hmm. uh, who, who had died in an avalanche. And uh, they, they, it was just hard uh, to read, you know, about that person and, and the life they had had, had led and, and, how, and, and how wonderful a person that, that person really was. And they told other things that were really important about that person. And this is where it makes me just believe that there's like higher powers of some type. And I'm not going to, I mean, this isn't a religious podcast, but, right. but nevertheless, in that letter, they said that the sister of the person who was my donor had a kid shortly thereafter and they named that kid Colin. Oh, wow. And they did not know who I was. They did not know who the recipient was at all. They had no idea. They picked that name out of, I mean, how, how common is the name Colin? Not very common. No. Yet it, it is striking, and I don't, I have no explanation on why or how that happened. It's unexplainable by anything. It really yeah. is. That gave me chills. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it makes me cry. So, yeah. uh, nevertheless, you know, I do know who that person was. And I'll skip to the second person. It, it took that person 20, 22 years to write me back. Uh, and, and she had never thrown my letter away. It's, it's just amazing that she held it for so long. Mm-hmm. And oh, maybe, I don't know, four or five months ago, maybe six months ago, give or take, uh, I received an instant message on, on Facebook, of all things, oh, wow. saying, are you the person that got a transplant in 1998? And, and I was like, wow, okay, so it's a little scary when you get IMs about your health. It just is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or any kind of message about your health. I mean, it's, although I've never hidden my transplant, if you do a search for my name, you will find mm-hmm. something out there about transplants in my name. I mean, you might have to dig, but it's there. 
but this person somehow found me after 20 years based on the fact that I, I was in science. I liked science because mm-hmm. she showed me what the transplant people told them, uh, and it was very minimal. They said I was working for a biotech company in Boulder, and I liked science, and and I liked reading and sports, and, and that was about all they were told. Wow. And somehow after 20 years, she tracked me down mm-hmm. uh, and found me. Uh, and this was uh, the sister of my second donor. And here's another miracle. Somehow the, my donor had a son who was 10 when she died. Uh, and it turns out, I mean, I've worked at Anschutz for, gosh, I don't know, 15 years. Well, mm-hmm. in, at CU Health. Uh, it's been a long time. Well, he actually worked in the building where I got my coffee every day. And he said he remembered me and said that we had even said hi sometimes. And, and I'm like, are you kidding me? How can that be? Uh, yeah. that, that, you know, I mean, out of all the places to work in Denver, to work yes. in shoots, so hard to understand or explain. Uh, now, I have not met him yet. Mm-hmm. Or, or his his aunt, who was the one that actually signed the donor form, right? Uh, but that is in the plans. Uh, COVID kind of interrupted that. Uh, but I'm actually looking forward to meeting them and learning who she was, who 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 gave me this gift that's given me, you know, going on 23 years. Who who did that? Who was this wonderful person? What was she like? Mm-hmm. Uh, and tell them you know, how important it was to me in, in my life and what it meant. So Definitely. there, yeah. Well, and, and you have touched so many with your life. Uh, you have a wonderful family. You have done a lot in the research field. You are, you know, you've, you've given back left and right. And I know one of the ways that you also give back, Colin, is you have been a speaker with the o- Organ Donor Association you talk about organ donation, you and your family participate in, you know, the fundraisers and the runs and, and, and those kinds of things. So um, mm-hmm. tell us how important organ donorship is. And if they don't realize it now, having just listened to the story, then we'll, we'll give them facts and figures and numbers. And Oh, so. sure. Uh, so <laughs> I was a volunteer for Donor Alliance for quite a few years. Uh, I've stepped back the last couple of years just because my kids have, uh, I've been wanting to spend more time with them because they've been, you know, with sports in high school and, and uh, all those things that, that are really important when they reach it, they start uh, becoming more mature and I wanted to be there for them. So I, I haven't been speaking for the last few years. Uh, nevertheless, as a speaker for the Donor Alliance, my job is a, it's a volunteer speaker. Uh, and there's quite a few people that do this around the state. Uh, we go around and we give talks basically explaining what donation did for us. And we also give statistics uh, and, and, and let people understand why it's so important. And one of those statistics is that there, in the U.S. alone, there's over 100,000 people today waiting for a life-saving donation. Now, that's not just livers. Uh, it's kidneys, you know, heart, lungs, even intestines, something to mm-hmm. save their life. There's still 100,000 people. That's a lot of people, okay? Yes. And in the U.S., we have a system where you actually have to sign your donor form 
uh, and agree to be a donor. And it's really easy. You just, when you go to the driver's license bureau, you, you say, yes, you get a heart on your driver's license and you're an organ donor. Uh, or you can go to the Donor Alliance website uh, or Donate Life Colorado's website. And there's a little button you can click and you can sign up to be an organ donor. And the rates vary from state to state. And it turns out Colorado is actually one of the highest rates of organ donation or, or agreeing to be an organ donor in the entire country. Uh, we have 68% of people have agreed. But that means there's still 32% of people who don't agree. And uh, so... Part of the mission of the Donor Alliance is to try and promote organ awareness mm-hmm. and also get more people to sign up. Yeah, so, definitely. Well, uh, in our show notes, I think they're people, very successful at that. I'm sorry, what's your question? Yes. So, no, we um, in our show notes, we're definitely going to link to the Organ Donor um, Alliance site, the national one, the one for Colorado, those kinds of things, because it is very important. And you're living proof that it saves a life. It gives somebody longevity. It allows you to have your family and experience all the wonderful things that you've experienced. Yeah, uh, I would not have a family without a liver transplant. Uh, I would have died long before I ever met my wife. Mm -hmm. I I met her in grad school uh, and and my kids are only 14 and 15 years old right now. They Mm -hmm. would not be here. So not one, but two people agreed to be organ donors to save my life is a tribute to the fact that that they, I mean, new life has arisen because of it, not just my own, but my family's. Mm-hmm. And of course, my kids will have kids probably. And all of that is due to their, their decision. Their, 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 yeah, it just the, the fact that they chose to save somebody and it turned out to be me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the questions that comes up is about grief. And I know that sometimes the recipient has a grief over it, being the one that was alive. Um, how do you how do you talk through that if somebody asks you, do you have grief being the recipient? W- what does that look like to you? So it is quite common to, to have a lot of grief going through the transplant process because you you naturally ask, why me? Why was I the one who was saved? Okay, out of all the people in this world who need transplants or or need their life saved, why me? Mm-hmm. And, and and I answer it with why not me? Uh, I believe that you know, getting a second chance at life gave me the chance to do something with my life. And I answer it with well, with this gift that I've been given, have I actually? honored my donors by doing the best I could with everything in life from trying to be a dad to mm-hmm. my kids, trying to be a good husband to my wife, trying to be a good liver researcher. And, and I, I say, why not me? Because I, I, I've been able to take what they've given me and make the best of it. Now, have, have you know, could it, I have done better? Of course I could. But nevertheless, I've honored them as best I could with my life and the days I've been given. I will say that some people really do grapple with that. And, and all transplant teams, when you're evaluated for a transplant, there's a social, there's a social uh, psychologist, so, sociologist on staff mm-hmm. that is specifically there to help you and also you know be there uh, because it's not uncommon to really feel a lot of guilt and there's resources for transplant patients to to help deal with that kind of guilt. I personally never needed those. 
mm-hmm. uh, because I really, I went straight to grad school on a mission to right. get a PhD and, and, and make a difference through science. And it drove me every day trying to do that to, to, to accomplish my goals. But some people, you know, they already have their job and, and transplant has completely made it. I mean, I couldn't work before my transplant. And a lot of people struggle to recover and, and get back to work. And it takes a physical and mental toll on, on, on you going through it. But I do tell them that because I'm on a lot of transplant website boards and not boards, but I, I give advice. Right. And I say, use the time you've been given as best you can. That doesn't mean be perfect. Enjoy your life, though. Get out and, and enjoy it as best that you really can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it does help. Uh, knowing that you've been given a life, you weren't given a life to stay home and be to not do things. It, it, you were given a life. This person gave you that life with the expectation, expectation that they were saving your life mm-hmm. and, and you were going to keep living. What is living? Living is going and doing things in your life. And it is hard. It is hard because, I mean, we're immunosuppressed. So we, we take drugs every day. And especially, I mean, with COVID around, we're not going anywhere. Right. We're that population that's high risk. We can't really go anywhere. And it's been that way since day one for me. I mean, I, I've never liked going in crowded areas. Uh, I've always tried to, I don't like to shake hands. And it makes you seem a little reclusive. And it does, that takes a toll mentally as well. But it's a survival instinct. It's, it's right. wait, if I go shake somebody's hand who had the flu and accidentally touched my face, flu kills transplant patients really easy. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to do that. Now, it also means that I also, being a scientist, I know too much and, <laughs> and I overthink things. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, it's kind of a, a protective response that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but I do live my life as best I can. I mean, COVID put a dent in everyone's life. I won't lie about that. True. But nevertheless, we found ways to watch our kids other ways, like watch them on, on Zoom videos or whatever, so that you can still be there and enjoy life, enjoy watching them grow up, even though you might not be there you know, in person. I mean, my wife travels with my kids to their volleyball tournaments. Uh, lo and behold, both my kids play volleyball. I don't know how that happened. I uh, have no idea. <laughs> I don't know either. Uh, but she's the one that travels and gets to watch them where where I, I don't, you know, I, I watch by video, but then I, when, when I see them, I'm like, wow, you guys did this really cool. And you guys did great. So mm-hmm. you, you make the best of the situation and, and you keep going and enjoying your life. I and mean, it's, it's not quite as fun not to be there, but nevertheless, it's still fun seeing them enjoy what they love as well. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Colin, as we, as we wrap up here, any words of wisdom for people out there who have either um, had experience of the organ transplant, whether it be someone that, that gave an organ, received an organ, or just words of wisdom that you can give everyone about how they can be involved and, and live their life, as you say. For the people who have had transplants, my advice is just to live your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people with them, I, I have to say, you know, it's not just hard on people who get the transplants. And this is a tangent, but but nevertheless, it's equally as hard on the care of it giver mm-hmm. because you you can't take care of yourself uh, when you get out of a transplant. And, and I was lucky enough to have two parents who took care of me, but it takes a toll on them as well. It is not easy to take care of somebody who who is going through the transplant process. I mean, usually 
before the transplant. Today, I mean, people, since there's so few few organs available and there's so many people waiting for transplant now, you really, most people are extremely sick when they get their transplants. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then they're extremely sick coming out and it takes much longer to recover. Yes, they get out of the hospital, but then after they're home, they're still not able just to spring back to go and run in a mile, you know, right. walking 10 feet and being exhausted. So caregivers, the people that help us through this experience are equally valuable. Uh, and I, I do have to mention that because for transplant patients, you need to accept the support that you have around you. You can't say, I can do it myself. You need to say, look, I need help and accept it. Mm -hmm. And that makes a huge difference because it it takes the burden of recovery off you. I know it makes it hard for the caregivers, but they're, they're offering to help you. They're there to help you. And my parents, they, they washed my face. I mean, they took care of me and nursed me back to health Uh, without them. Yeah. Who knows what would have happened? Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, for transplant patients, really it is don't, think of a transplant as something that's stopping your life. Uh, I mean, yes, it, it is hard to live as immunosuppressed. It is. It, 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 you do have to change. It's not like, you know, there's, there's people who get transplants at all ages. So if you're a kid with biliary atresia who gets transplanted when you're really young, you know, it's not wise to be going to bars when you hit your 20s. Uh, so you have to adapt and change how you live. But nevertheless, It doesn't mean that life isn't fun because it is. You still can do almost everything. It's just there's a little more risk. Uh, So as long as you wash your hands and take precautions, the risk is minimized. Go hiking. Do things, you know, outside, which is why we live in Colorado anyway, right? Right. We live here to go skiing and hiking and doing all that or playing volleyball. Yes. The mecca of volleyball is Colorado, right? Uh, (laughs) It actually has quite a bit of sand volleyball, but... Uh, nevertheless, I wouldn't call it a Mecca, <laughs> uh, but life is equally fulfilling for transplant patients. You just have to live it slightly differently. I mean, we still go to work. I mean, I, I love my job. I mean, I get to go in and play with, with livers and, and try and solve liver disease. doesn't mean that I, just because I had a transplant doesn't mean that I would say, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, and I know people have from all walks of life with all careers get transplants and they, they go on afterwards and and live pretty normal lives. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they get to do whatever they want. I mean, they, they go on vacations. They do virtually everything, just like I have. I mean, we went on a vacation with you, right. uh, and it was a lot of fun. But nevertheless, you have to always in the back of my mind, I'm always saying, okay, I have to be careful. Right. I have to make sure I don't get sick. And this is pre-COVID. It doesn't matter. COVID is just another thing in the path. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, there's lots of things from measles to, to, to flu. I mean, transplant patients die very quickly from measles. They can't survive it very well. I mean, I mean, very right. few survive. Uh, so another reason why we hope that it's our hope is that everybody in the world is vaccinated against all these nasty diseases because we can't fight them. <laughs> I know it doesn't sound great saying everybody go get vaccinated, but it's, it saves people like me uh, right. who, who, even though I get vaccines, uh, you know, I've had my COVID vaccine, but research is now showing, even with COVID vaccines, only as the latest stats, 17% of transplant patients actually mount an immune response to the COVID vaccines. Uh, and that's Moderna or Pfizer uh, with the first dose. Uh, mm-hmm. The paper came out actually today. 
17 percent is not a good number, you know, whereas 100 percent actually start developing. If you're normal and don't have any underlying conditions, 100 percent of people develop an immune response to the COVID vaccines. Wow. Uh, so seven, only 17 of us transplant patients actually have a good or even a response at all. Right. It might not be a robust response, but a response. So we, we hope that everybody does get vaccinated so that we don't get sick because yes. uh, it makes life safer for us. It does. Going on off on lots of tangents. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I appreciate your time sharing your story. And I hope that there are people out there that become donor givers. And I have the heart on my, my driver's license. So I, I just want people to really pay attention and understand that it's life-giving. It is. And in other countries, we don't have an opt-in or they don't have an opt-in for organ donation. If you go to England, it's opt-out. Oh, wow. If you go to Canada, I think at least in some of the provinces in Canada, it's opt-out. So everybody automatically is assumed to be a donor there mm-hmm. unless they say, I don't want to be which is crazy. I mean, all religions in the world accept organ donors and transplants. There's not a single religion out there that won't, won't prevent you that I know of, of being an organ donor. There's no reason why you should say no. And the re- reality of it is the only time you're usually going to be an organ donor, if you die, is, is if you don't have diseases such as cancer, you have a stroke. I mean, the conditions where your organs are good enough to donate are not the vast majority of cases. Mm-hmm. Most heart attack patients die and, and they don't get to the hospital quick enough to save their organs. Some do, but not many. Right, right. Uh, the vast majority of us die from chronic diseases like diabetes, cancer, et cetera, which probably aren't good for organ donation. But nevertheless, you have nothing to lose to say yes. Uh, the only thing you have is to gain. You can gain by saving somebody's life. And to me, that is the ultimate gift that anybody can give. If you're going to die, why not die saving somebody's life? There, there's I no choice in my mind. Yeah. And I don't think I could sum up a, a ending sentence better than what you just did. Colin, thank, thank you. you again. I appreciate it. What, I mean, more than you know. So thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. And uh, looking forward to uh, another vacation sometime. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. This has been another Evolving Smart Storytelling episode. To learn more about organ donation, please see the links in our show notes.